the last ship stranded by the giant container vessel that ran aground in the Suez Canal are finally passing through the waterway. That's according to the Canal Authority, which says the backlog should be clear as of Saturday, April the 3rd, and an investigation into the incident will report its findings within the next few days. 85 ships were expected to pass through the canal from both sides. They include the last 61 ships out of the 422 that were queuing when the Ever Given ran aground last month. International supply chains were thrown into disarray when the 400-metre-long vessel blocked the vital trade artery, although it was dislodged on March the 29th. Specialist rescue teams took almost a week to free her after extensive dredging and repeated tugging operations. Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 58 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan here with Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. And today we're joined by Lala Khalili, professor of international politics at Queen Mary University of London and author of the excellent new book, Sinews of War and Trade, Shipping and Capitalism in the Arabian Peninsula. And with, with everything that was going on, you know, recently uh, in the Suez Canal, with the big giant boat painted with evergreen, uh, the, the ever given um, blocking, you know, shipping, uh, global logistics, choke pointing, all, you know, all the memes, everything. We were like, we know we have to talk about this, but there is such a bigger story here um, in understanding just this like, you know, 150 plus year history of the Suez Canal and its links to the kind of rise of global shipping, what that means for capitalism. And there was no one better to get on to talk to us about this than Lala. So thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for asking me. I'm really excited to be talking about this. Could you give, just to kind of set the scene, could you tell us a little bit about this like uh, about the blockage and about the whole, it moved very quickly, right? It's like one day the Suez Canal is blocked. Everyone's like, oh my God, there's a big boat clogging up the gears of global capitalism. And then like, it seemed like the next day, everyone's like, all right, our little mini like excavator actually did its job and the tide came in and now global shipping is back in action. Um, I think part of the attraction of the story, aside from all the amazing memes that were created around it, was um, as somebody posted on Twitter, and I really wish I had screenshot that because it was just, it rolled by. It, that person said, you know, I don't understand the working of capital when it's credit swaps or it's blockchains or it's um, various kinds of, you know, short selling. Uh, but a ship stopping global trade because it blocks a canal, I can understand. And I <laughs> thought, wow, that's actually really interesting. And, and in fact, actually also touches on something that I really um, found, uh, found myself drawn to when I was writing the book, which was that I really wanted to also understand the really super technical stuff around derivatives and uh, the technology. In fact, blockchains do appear in the book very briefly as well. And, and for me, that was as important and as interwoven with the, the massive physical material 
awesome ship in front of us physically blocking this ditch, um, an incredibly big and significant and important ditch, but essentially a ditch in the desert. <laughs> I mean, that's how it, it's been this, you know, defined in really old literatures, because obviously the Suez Canal was, uh, in fact, a functioning ditch also thousands of years ago, and then it was re-dug um, 150 or so years ago. So what happened with, the, with um, Ever Given, uh, which is the name of a ship owned by the, or operated, not owned, in fact, that's quite important, mm. operated by a Taiwan based um, ship uh, freight carrier called um, Evergreen Li uh, Lines. Uh, what happened with Ever Given was that um, apparently the captain uh, was navigating the ship in a convoy northwards um, down the canal, and he was uh, not that far up from uh, the bottom of the canal where the um, town of Suez is, and you know the, the sort of the top of the Gulf of Suez is where all the ships that are heading north usually sit at anchor until they're given permission to convoy and go north. Um, and it was a very, very windy day, and there was wind blowing across the canal, and the captain apparently did some of the things that you're supposed to do, which is to steer into the wind. But I think that something went awry, uh, and he may have oversteered. They don't exactly know. The FT had a really interesting discussion with a with a, um, a sort of a hydrographer uh, or a hydrophysicist, and they, they talked a little bit about this. But essentially what happens is that a lot of stuff happens below the ship in the currents in the in, in, uh, underneath the ship, and the ship ends up getting wedged sideways into the canal with its, um, with its bow, the bulbous nose at the front, uh, cutting through the side of the canal. Now, the side of the canal is not concrete. So if you've seen pictures of Panama Canal, Panama Canal is like this, it, it is some, a massive kind of a tunnel made out of, without a head, without a roof, uh, made out of uh, concrete. But mm. Panama Canal is essentially, as I said, it's a very deep ditch, which has got riprap, which is a, which is a kind of a gravel, right, or big chunks of rock on the side. And so that was, in fact, why a digger could come and start trying to dig. And people made fun of that, but in fact, that was actually quite a reasonable thing to do, given the particularities of the canal itself. So what was particularly interesting about this instance was, of course, that this is not the first time a ship's gotten stuck in the canal. So there have been other instances. Uh, four or five years ago, there was another ship. It was released fairly quickly when it ground uh, grounded in the canal. More importantly, uh, in the 2000s, in the early 2000s, there was a tanker that actually grounded um, in the canal and um, uh, and it actually blocked the shipping for four days. But I think back then, memes were not as quite as significant. And so, <laughs> uh, no, I'm, I'm dead serious. This is, you yeah. laugh. But I think part of the reason that this was so attractive was precisely because of the aesthetic of memes, making it available, making it understandable, making it approachable in some ways. And so when that tanker grounded down I don't know, 15 years ago, 15, 16 years ago, for four days, we didn't hear about it, and it was released eventually. So what is also interesting about this is that, of course, in 2015, 2016, um, after a really violent coup in Egypt, General Sisi, the autocratic uh, ruler of Egypt, wanted a symbolic kind of a nationalist infrastructure project. And so he, with the support of his ally, counter-revolutionary uh, uh, the powers, Saudi government, uh, they paid for the digging of a second channel uh, parallel to the you know, to the, to the initially existing channel. But that second channel only functions in the middle third of the canal. 
So mm. the bottom third and the top thirds coming down from Port Said and going up from Suez are still one way, although now there are considerations being made. CC said something to the effect that this might be something that they're going to look into it, that they might actually make it a two-way canal the whole way. Um, but this was also quite significant because, of course, aside from the sort of the aesthetic attraction of this, it sort of drew attention uh, to the to the significance of this waterway um, in global shipping. Uh, suddenly, everybody can now tell you that it's 12% of the world's uh, maritime goods travel through the canal. Yeah. We now know that just-in-time manufacturing, particularly auto manufacturing in Europe, is really affected by this because, of course, just-in-time production depends on goods being there when you want them even three or four days of delay throws all the schedules off um and of course there was some concerns about oil getting to the manufacturing centers of um of china and uh, southeast asia and clean gasoline coming to europe so so these were all very specific things and then in the uk uh with all the concerns around the virus there was also concerns that maybe uh, vaccines that are manufactured in india which is a massive hub of pharmaceutical manufacturing, that those vaccines may be on one of these uh, 200 ships that are trying to come mm. northwards. There were also 200 going southward that, that were blocked. So, so all of those things end up, ended up touching on some of the anxieties that, of course, COVID also had intensified, but it also made everybody want to understand what was going on. And so I think that that was part of the reason that Ever Given ended up becoming such a sort of a significant leader of the news reports and, uh, and meme presence and something that people actually educated themselves about so i think yeah. it's great yeah i mean it, it does you know things like this definitely bring attention to the otherwise kind of smooth frictionless hidden operations of these global logistics infrastructure networks that are that are part and parcel and necessary foundations for capital. I mean, it makes me think of um, the, the scholar Susan Lee Starr, who you know does a lot of work on infrastructure right? and, and has mm -hmm. argued a lot about the ways in which infrastructure is this kind of hidden, invisible thing that goes unnoticed until it stops working. Then it's suddenly thrown into sharp relief that, oh, this infrastructure exists and it's really important. And, and yeah, I mean, I think that the, the ever given blockage did a really great job. Like you said, like now people are aware that the Suez Canal still exists and is still necessary. And as you said, like 12% of global trade goes through there. And yeah, I mean, I, I think this is important. And I think this is also, this is one reason why we wanted to talk to you as well is because like, there's such a bigger history here, but also a bigger importance here than, yeah, just this one ditch in the middle of the desert mm -hmm. um and and you had a great piece in the washington post recently right after the blockage where you talk about how this also reveals the ways in which um th this this infrastructure of global shipping is so fragile and so brittle um in ways that are are, are you know pretty shocking when we when we actually look at the the numbers at how important this one the you know, passageway actually is. I mean, I think that's one of the things that we are, we're also learning because of COVID, that if you actually want, uh, you know, capitalism uh, sort of 
or, or the ideologues of capitalism pride themselves on the efficiency, for example, or the profitability of the particular businesses. But we also know that robustness is the, or efficiency is the enemy of robustness. And, and the kinds of efficiencies that are created through this ostensibly frictionless, and, and, and that's one of the things that I try to actually challenge in, in my mm. book, is this ostensibly frictionless trade it becomes very clear that, in fact, it is very brittle. In fact, okay, so maybe ships could go around the Cape of Good Hope. If they're steaming really fast, they could get around it in 10 days or so longer than it would have been going through the Suez Canal. But it also reveals the extent to which we actually take all of this for granted. We we assume, I mean, this is, the, the and I think, again, this played on the anxieties that COVID sort of also produced. We, we assume that there's always going to be, for example, containers that are going to bring our goods from one location to another and one of the very interesting and odd and you know all the all the transportation and maritime nerds were on this um, and it sort of leaked into the regular news as well but one of the reasons why there has been some shortages of some things and why some supply chains haven't functioned is not because production has stopped nor because you know the the consumption the demand has dropped but because there are not enough containers to carry stuff between china and its various destinations because when covid happened and suddenly lots of ports and airports shut down containers were where they were. And then when production started again, they weren't where they were supposed to be. And so we've become very dependent on this extremely low tech, but crucial piece of capitalist technology. And that is you know, a steel container, 20 foot, 40 foot or 45 foot container that carries all of our goods, that travels intermodally from the port to onto a truck or onto a train that, that you know, that, that is crucial, um, absolutely, to the transformation of global trade uh, in, in the ways that we recognize it today. Yeah, I mean, I think that raising this point about containerization is really interesting as well, because, it, yeah, uh, you know, I, I had friends sending me like the 99% invisible episode about containerization, right? Which I think is like everyone's kind of touchstone. And I was like, yeah, that that is like foundational logistics nerd stuff. Like you, th- these, yeah. these metal boxes have done more to revolutionize the movement of, of goods and the circulation of capital than almost anything else in history. They really have. Uh, well, I think the steam engine is probably quite crucial as yeah. well. So <laughs> I would say so. Um, but, but precisely for actually those things, reasons. So in, in some ways, the steam engine and, and later um, oil field engines have been absolutely quite crucial in, in allowing for capital to, to choose where it wants to produce um, and for um, and, and for you know people to um, move from one location to another location uh, carrying the goods that they want to carry. And so in, in a way, the steam engine, in, in terms of global trade, in terms of what has, and I, I have a little bit of a problem with the term globalization in part because it sort of makes it seem as if it's something new that has happened and there's no precedent to it. But in some senses, uh, what we call the, the sort of the most recent round of globalization, which happens in the, let's say, 80s and 90s, and then sort of, you know, just uh, kind of flourishes in the early 2000s, that was completely and totally facilitated by both the container ship and these faster, um, uh, and the container itself, but and also by tankers. And so, in in a sense, maritime transport and containerized intermodal transport have been crucial. The circulation has been crucial to the spread of capitalism. Marx really, volume two. 
<laughs> yes. <laughs> the, the, the volume that no one reads. <laughs> Which I actually, when I went on a, con- I, I traveled twice on a container ship. And the first time I went on it, I was such a cliche. I took Mark's volume two. I took Fernand Brodel's Mediterranean, the, the, the Mediterranean and the Asia Philip, which I highly recommend to anybody interested in the origins of capitalism, actually. Um, and I took Melville's Moby Dick. Total cliche. <laughs> I love it. As you said, like everything's monolithic nature is taken for granted. Like to see a port from a distance or see ships come into one itself betrays like a sense of like, oh, this is like a very organized, grand, like pinnacle of whatever we could achieve process. But, you know, as you, uh, you know, I think one of the very interesting points I never really even thought about was just like how much all of this follows along lines that were laid by like some of the earliest imperial routes and then have been preserved by this or that alliance or or configuration of imperial powers or their successors um, trying to preserve, uh, you know, their cut or their share, Um, you know, especially with like even something like the new fiber optic cables that are being laid down, like to think that they would be freed of some of these constraints because they're a new, you know, type of technology when it just falls in line exactly with like the constraints that have already been placed on us by history. I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned the fiber optic cables because, of course, those are those those along with the container ships are extraordinarily crucial to to the kinds of to the, to the working of capitalism. So it's so they're the reason that we have information, and of course, we know that information is absolutely uh, you know central to to both commerce and to colonialism. Um, and it's to me again, it's really interesting that both the um, the ships, the, the freighters today, as well as the fiber optic cables, actually follow those old colonial routes as you mentioned so um, many of those uh, many of the even uh, tracks many of the routes for the fiber optic cables actually follow on on first the television cables underwater television and radio cables that were laid and then going further back into history along the telegraph lines and in Mm -hmm. fact um, the the sort of the units for example of um, the the British government that is involved in laying fiber optic cables if they do uh, are are, you know are drawing on those old histories um, of drawing you know that the, the sort of the, the the processes of surveying and figuring out what is going on and sort of providing the information all of that uh, was absolutely central to the the processes of colonialism um, going all the way back but especially in the 19th century and so yeah you can see you can definitely uh, see the, uh, the the tracks the, the 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 laying down of tracks underwater and on the surface of the water the roots having these echoes from colonial histories which for me it was crucial to, to to tap into that because I think without talking about that we really don't understand why some of the places that have become significant have become significant now and why others have fallen out of favor if you will you you just talk about like the historic lines of you know where uh all the underwater cables and things like that generally go i was talking to a friend of mine the other day who's a kind of a uh, urban planner and we were having a conversation about how new orleans a city where jathan and i spent a lot of time uh most of the major roads in new orleans were built on ancient creek beds Part of the reason why the streets, the concrete is always, there's always an upheaval, there's always potholes, because it was the simplest thing to do was just 
these creeks ran, they didn't, you know, there was nothing really impeding their, their way. So let's just pave it over and make a street out of it. So it's almost, it seems like the same thing. It's just these easy pathways that were already pre-cut out and just continue building on top of that. I think that's absolutely right. And it's the, the same is true in London. I mean, Fleet Street here, which is famous because that's where all the newspapers used to be, um, is actually Fleet River paved over. So, you know, that, that also applies here. But what is also uh, one of the things I, there are canals all around London and I'm very close to one, about maybe 500 meters from it. Um, and I, it's one of my, on my running route. And one of the things that's interesting about those canals is that these were of course commercial canals that went to sort of the Limehouse Basin on the Thames and, they, and there would be various kinds of goods brought in to be distributed in London, uh, primarily actually coal from Newcastle and ice, blocks of ice from Norway were brought in, mm-hmm. uh, in you know, into the Thames River and then dislodged onto, the, onto these canals, which are now kind of a leisure places. Um, but interestingly, in the 1960s, they wanted to actually pave those over and turn them into roads. And the national grid, which is our electricity thing, decided that no, in fact, it would be better if the cables that electrify the entire city of London and and, and environs actually run on the pavement alongside the canal, because A, the water in the canal can keep the sort of the massive electric infrastructure there cool, but also that means that then you don't have to dig up roads if you need to fix the cables. And so right now, if you go running on the canal, some of the pavement stones feel like, sound like a timpani, uh, because they're quite, you know, they're, they're sitting on top of these electric national grids, you know, massive cable things. And so that kind of um, reusability, that kind of a um, recycling, if you will, um, uh, of infrastructures um, can be seen at the national level. But I think what what I was interested in was that it could be seen at the local level, it could be seen at the Mm -hmm. national level, and then, of course, it could be seen at the global imperial level as well. And so that to me is just so interesting that to be able to sort of go across all of these different scales, geographic scales is really fantastic. Yeah. I mean, it really shows that the, you know, there's this kind of uh, attitude of taking the path of least resistance, right? You just, it's so much easier to just build on top of infrastructure that's already there. And, and like Ed was saying as well, it, in a lot of ways, it, it locks us into these histories in ways that we are so unaware of. Um, and even ways that I think planners don't even think about, right? Because it's just like, oh, this is just the easy way to do it um, without thinking like, yeah, this is easy because uh, they were first right. laid by imperial powers, you know, hundreds of years ago. And we're just reproducing that and replaying those geographies and those networks of power and capital in, in so many ways. I mean, you brought up the telegraph lines um, earlier, and and um, this was one of the things that I really stood out to me in your book that I find found super interesting that, and I was just even unaware of it myself. Um, Shamefully, this is normally my area, but uh, uh, you, you mentioned that, you know, you say, quote, the first telegraph lines were laid across the Atlantic, but the next two were planted between France and Algeria and between Britain and India. The technology was crucial to the control of the colonies. You go on to talk about some of the work of some historians who even argue that these communication by telegraph cables was more pivotal to the maintenance of British economic and political power than even the railways or the steamships um, because it allowed uh, for this this kind of internal stitching of information and gathering in the Indian colonies. 
I mean, if we if we take it seriously, that a, a great deal of um, British um, the British Empire was about uh, uh, extraction of profit, um, about, it was about commercial advantage, then we know that the telegraph mattered a great deal precisely because the telegraph allowed for transmission of information that could be used commercially. And that was why it was so, it also, the laying down of telegraph actually changed also the structure of global shipping, because you went from having to figure out where to take, you know, the tramp shipping. So you essentially tramp from one place to another place, try to pick up goods and sell it to another place. You went from tramp shipping shipping to very well planned centrally planned um, maritime transport which allows for that efficiency again for a degree of efficiency by figuring out because you because you're telegraphed from different parts of the world um, and you're told where some good needs to be moved to where and then in that destination what good can be picked up for a backhaul and so I think th that mm. was enormously important and of course it was also important in strategic ways because it allowed you for allowed for military and naval transmission of information as well so strategically and commercially the telegraph was crucial also just just going back to that history of the Suez Canal as well you you had a description of it that really stood out to me where you say quote the Suez Canal was a site of technological experimentation and innovation and an exemplar of capitalist infrastructural power and colonial expansion and I, I think that that history is lost even am even amongst the kind of uh, attention brought on by the ever given blockage right i don't think most people realize that one the the suez canal was opened in 1869 it is a very old by our standards and by capitalist standards um technology and 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 not only that it was uh intimately linked to um Britain's dominion over the oceans, their extraction um, and imperialism over coal and natural resources. Uh, so, I mean, without the British Empire, we wouldn't have the Suez Canal. So who can say if it's good and or bad? And the French. No. And the French, of course. I mean, I mean, the engineer who takes credit for it is Ferdinand de Lesseps, who actually also tried, he, he had the first go at doing the Panama Canal. But then the, the US and the Monroe Doctrine and, you know, the, the US Imperium over the Western Hemisphere took over that one but um but it is really interesting that in fact it was a, it, this so this is where also it's fascinating is that the reason both the the, the british and the french wanted to get to the indian ocean via a, a quicker maritime route was because they they had imperial and slash colonial interests in in those areas but it's fascinating that despite the massive rivalries that they had in the mediterranean and then of course in the colonies they were quite happy to collaborate on creating this infrastructure that was going to facilitate their colonial hold over, um, you know, their holdings in the Indian and or around the Indian Ocean. And so I think to me, that is fascinating is the way that the sort of the empires, you know, have each other's back, even in the moment at which their rivalry is so incredibly intense. I think another like site of collaboration that was really fascinating was when you talked about how on the wake of expropriation of like foreign, uh, foreign property from the Bolshevik and the Mexican revolutions mm -hmm. that then they started to construct these like legal devices so that you wouldn't be able to seize you know their property um, and their companies and their uh, and the assets of their investors and you know I would love I think to talk more about that also because I think it's really fascinating the lengths to which capital and otherwise competing interests and competitors will collaborate immediately and, and fix contradictions or, or rifts um, to prevent 
something as dangerous because for them it is of nationalization or of expropriation, right? I think you're absolutely spot on on that one. And I think that in some ways, again, maritime transport illuminates that because it shows the extent to which competing interests, competing maritime interests, competing even naval interests are willing to collaborate on creating the necessary legal, contractual, and political framework in order for them to be able to operate in that ostensibly frictionless way. So they could they could rivals but within a framework established and recognized as such by all of them. And what is interesting is the extent to which China's introduction, for example, today um, into this kind of a great games, if you will, great maritime games, at once challenges some of the actors in here, but still happens more or less along the rules established in the North Atlantic by the end of the um, 19th century and certainly by the beginning of the 20th century. As I keep saying here and everywhere that I can, is that the rules of accounting, the rules of the standards of engineering, the, the legal processes in which arbitration, the legal settings in which arbitration happens, the ways in which contract is enforced, um, all of these different things, these are all also invisible infrastructures of global capital. Mm. All of these are agreed upon and people obey them. People, by people, I mean the Chinese stick to them. And so in some senses, that to me is fascinating is the extent to which the traction of capital happens through these um, agreed upon but invisible uh, business infrastructures or if you will, capital infrastructures. So to me, actually the story, um, so I love reading legal texts. Don't ask me why I'm a complete nerd. Uh, I also love reading engineering texts. So, um, but that's but that's more explicable. I have an undergraduate degree in engineering, but um, but I love reading legal texts because it is amazing that once you get past the jargon and once you understand what sort of the the language uh, is explaining. You become it, it becomes really legal texts are incredibly frank about what they want to do. They don't hide. Once you know the jargon, they are incredibly open. In fact, precisely because they are establishing, um, they're, they're facilitating the consolidation of capital. They're encouraging capital to operate. So it has to be clear that the parameters have to be clear. And so, going through these legal texts, as well as the memoirs of the um, judges that were so involved in establishing these tribunals that dealt with nationalization or even the whiff of nationalization in many instances of Western capital in these newly decolonizing states. And you read these texts and they're incredibly frank about that, about the fact that these legal mechanisms are intended to protect capital against the depredations of new de newly decolonizing states that might want access to their own uh, goods, uh, access to their own resources, access to the capital that is raised out of their own resources. And so there's one particular case that I write about um, where the judge uh, you know, has a very self-congratulatory essay about all of the different things he was involved in. And one of the things that he writes about is that we dethroned the state, um, we being the arbitration tribunals. And by dethroning the state, they don't mean Britain or the US or any other European powers. They mean the newly decolonized states that were demanding a uh, place at the economic table. 
at the feast of history, you know, and so it's quite extraordinary that they're quite frank about this and they think they've done the right thing. I mean, the World Bank established the investor state uh, dispute mechanism or dispute resolution mechanism. Again, in the in the moment of decolonization in the 1960s, at the height of decolonization, and of course it took off after the end of the Cold War. It really sort of expanded massively after 1991, because of course then also state-owned um, uh, uh, enterprises in Eastern Europe were being suddenly privatized, and so these mechanisms end up ended up becoming quite significant. But it's really fascinating to see that colonialism is there silently. It reproduces it. And I keep going back to some of the texts written by the great sort of 1960s anti-colonial thinkers, people like Nkrumah, people, the, the, the more, uh, you know, whose neocolonialism actually lays out in unbelievable detail uh, the kinds of things that are happening. Walter Rodney's incandescent, glorious, how Europe underdeveloped Africa, or some of the more economic texts of Fanon, where he talks about the national bourgeoisie and the role that they're going to play in the post-colonial moment. And it's it's amazing how everything that they said was deeply prescient and so useful for today's analysis of the kinds of economic devices that were invented in that time period. Yeah, I mean, I think that I think that's great because what exactly what you're describing here are these kind of geopolitical hierarchies of sovereignty, right? That we're still living with today, which place countries in the global south at the bottom of that hierarchy. Above them are um, the kind of corporate bodies and the corporate representatives of Western capital, of imperial capital. You know, I even think about something like the you know the original kind of modern day corporation, the Dutch. East Indies Company, which has, you know, in, in political theory, um, has been called a, a franchise government, right? So it, it kind of, it acted as an arm of the government. Um, and and we can see that happening now, right? And this is exactly the, the ways in which the kind of jurisdiction over the seas, um, you know, over these maritime routes, over even questions around what counts as international waters and how far international waters extends outward from the shore. All of those are questions of this legal infrastructure, which is designed to uh, facilitate and entrench essentially um, capital's sovereignty over the colonial states. Absolutely. And it is amazing to see the extent to which, for example, the colonial states and the corporations worked hand in hand. Um, the states, uh, the ambassadors acted as kind of, uh, well, whatever, the executive committee of the bourgeoisie, if you will. But on the other hand, the corporations also acted as extensions of the state. So these corporate sovereigns or franchisees, in some senses, acted on behalf of their own imperial center. So to me, to, to some extent, it wasn't entirely only about uh, sort of capital uh, deciding what the state would do, but capital also facilitating, for example, their own uh, country's strategic hold. So, you know, a British corporation was going to always act on behalf of Britain in a way that um, belies a kind of the, the rootlessness of capital, as is often talked about. So I think it, that was, to me, that, that kind of a symbiotic relationship. And you saw that happening in particular in the Arabian Peninsula when it came to oil um, is, is absolutely fascinating.
another one of these kind of legal and economic infrastructures that are so uh, important. And that that's the free zones, right? So you talk in the book about the creation of these free zones, which you describe as these kind of enclaves within states, these kind of zones of exception where the sovereign prerogative of the state is suspended um, and subordinated to the kind of free flow of goods and of capital accumulation. And the Arabian Peninsula is peppered with these free zones um, all along the port lines. Yeah, all along the port lines and also uh, sometimes in the interior, because some of these free zones, they're kind of uh, land ports, if you will, the, which, which you know facilitate transportation inland. So it's interesting. There's, a, there's an anthropologist who's working on a, a very substantial um, historical account of the development of free zones in their modern kind of manifestation, post-First uh, post World War manifestation, and, some, and, and especially post-Second World War manifestations. And Patrick Neveling is his name and he, what, one of the things that he is working on that's really fascinating is um, is, the, is the way that American consulting firms uh, that that worked to, sort of as part of the uh, Cold War kind of um, army of capital protection of capital, if you will, um, Arthur Little in particular would travel from place to place, places that were considered to be on the front line of the Cold War, and would establish these free zones that would um, essentially provide, uh, they were supposed to be manufacturing zones that provided jobs for lots of people. And Patrick's writing clearly indicates that in historically, in a lot of these, as I said, frontline places, these free zones were intended as uh, as, as kind of a uh, modalities, as bombs to the economy so that you could, uh, as a, a, to stop revolutionary movements. It was, mm. that was their explicit statement. Now, what is happening today um, perhaps you know the revolutionary movements don't loom so large in the planning of these free zones. They have become now some sort of a modular thing that the World Bank, you know, uh, encourages you to set up wherever they go. You know, they have these modular programs that they just take from one place to another place to another place, regardless of context. Often, um, and and the free zone is one of them. And now what it does, and now what free zones do, is they allow for creation. Um, I don't think sovereign power is entirely suspended. I do think that what happens is they create variegated zones where different laws, different regulations apply side by side geographically, allowing for maximum choice for corporations, for example. Mm -hmm. And so that maximum choice, the, the ability to choose, the ability to pick and choose what they want from sets of regulations, from sets of, it, it, it facilitates um, their transport. They also really allow for, for example, avoiding um, uh, regulations in other places. So one of the things that was quite striking was that the Jabal Ali Free Zone, which is the, around Jabal Ali Port, the port in Dubai, which is uh, one of the world's biggest ports, the only port in the top 10 that is not in East or Southeast Asia. And it has this massive free zone, which has loads of manufacturing in it. It has an aluminum uh, smelter in it. It has uh, refineries. It has all sorts of things, but it also actually a significant portion of the stuff that goes on in there is services. So uh, legal services, for example, or accounting or whatever. But one of the or, or original corporations, one of the original sets of firms, businesses that took advantage of Jabal Ali Free Zone were actually um, Indian and Pakistani textile manufacturers in the 1970s who were trying to avoid the quotas that the EU, or at the time it wasn't EU, the EEC had set up against importation of goods from India, of, of textiles from India and Pakistan after 
you know, a certain amount of goods, they would have to pay quite substantial fees, um, tariffs on, on its importation. And so what Jabal Ali Free Zone did was it freed those manufacturers, those um, Indian and Pakistani capitalists, from having to say that their goods were manufactured in India or Pakistan. They allowed for those goods to be produced in Dubai, carrying the labor by taking advantage of the ship that was there that could ship everything over to Europe. And so it becomes a really convenient way for you to take your business wherever you want to in order to make it easy for you to avoid taxes or avoid tariffs or avoid, um, a lot, in a lot of times, uh, labor regulations. And so um, that uh, it, it has made it an extremely useful device. And that's probably why World Bank, again, as I said, has become a modular kind of te technology that the World Bank recommends um, to anybody who wants to set up manufacturing or diversify their economies or whatnot. Links up to something we've talked about in previous episodes, the ways in which like borders apply to us and borders do not apply to capital, right? Because that is what these free zones do is they allow um, for this kind of transnational um, and 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 I think you use the word convenient, and that's exactly right, right? It's it's about just making things as convenient as possible for capital, and and I love how you describe free zones as um, this this kind of modular technology for uh, the transfer of capitalist ideology and the the representation of capital's interest, and that modular aspect is really interesting as well. You know, it links up to so I, like I've done a lot of work on smart cities and smart urbanism mm -hmm. and and we can see that exact kind of thing playing out where you know big companies like IBM and Cisco will kind of go around the world and sell their kind of ready-made suite of smart solutions and management tactics and stuff too. And it's the same thing that they're selling and trying to implement um, in Latin America and Europe and China. It's, you know, it, all, all space is the same to them. And it makes me think of uh, the, the work by Martin Daniluk on um, infrastructure of these kind of fungible spaces, which I I found to be uh, such an interesting concept. So um, I wonder if you could talk about the ways in which it creates this kind of spatial fungibility where there, you know, these zones are meant to create spaces that are geographically dispersed, but legally, politically, economically, they're all the same. I, yeah, they are definitely dispersed. And um, some of them are very fungible and some of them are intentionally different. So mm -hmm. I think that both the difference and the similarity are created in order to give the maximum number of uh, the, the maximum amount of um, uh, uh, flexibility to 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 the production of capital, and I think that in some ways the free zones tend to be more often than not more similar than different than one another. So, for example, you'll end up having in a lot of places where, as I said, um, tariffs are removed, regulations on labor and environmental regulations are removed. But also, interestingly, um, in many of these places, uh, for example, um, rules for uh, national owners are suspended. So in a lot of, uh, uh, the, uh, there are leftover laws from the era of um, decolonization where a lot of countries have regulations that if you want to own sort of a business in a place, you have to ha have a partner that, uh, you know, that owns 51% of the business, for example. So to some extent, nationalizing the businesses in those places. But interestingly, in Dubai, for example, there are free zones. Uh, or that is or certainly in Jabal Ali free zone. All of those rules are suspended, and so you can have, uh, you know, hundred percent foreign ownership. And so um, that is 
true there, but it's not necessarily true in Abu Dhabi. And so that mm -hmm. also provides, Abu Dhabi, however, provides access. For example, Abu Dhabi is a major oil producer. And so it provides access to those kinds of petroleum-related businesses in a way that Dubai doesn't necessarily or does not to the same extent. And so that also is interesting because that, that provides you with avenues in which you can find services that are fitted to you, that are suited to you. Again, it's convenient for you. Um, I also want to tell an apocryphal story because I just love that. You, you were talking about this kind of a, the modularity, you can take it from anywhere to anywhere else. There's, this is, I, I, this story is, I think, apocryphal, but it could be also true. Um, you know, the Vision 2030 that Saudi Arabia introduced with a lot of fanfare under Mohammed bin yes. Salman. Well, it was, as you guys know, it was written by McKinsey. And I, I've heard the story that uh, when the first draft of it went out to a bunch of people, people noticed that in a lot of places, it said Lithuania instead of Saudi Arabia. And they had actually <laughs> cut and paste a whole lot of stuff from Lithuania into the Vision. So the Vision 2030 of Lithuania it was transported <laughs> to Saudi Arabia. I mean, you know, I, I was also a management consultant at a time, and I totally can see that, that, that you essentially have templates that you use. And it doesn't matter that Lithuania's economy is apples and Saudi's economies is watermelons. You know, it's like completely different kinds of things. Cut and paste, man. Yeah, and it's so control F. <laughs> it's so funny to also to think about because a lot of energy is spent on adhering to like very nicely packaged concepts of international affairs, especially with like Vision 2030, right? But the reality is nothing like that. And it's, I think, illuminating that like McKenzie was just like, nah, just, you know, just, <laughs> we'll give you Lithuania's plan. It doesn't actually matter yeah. what, what the limitations and what you actually need as a country uh, to achieve. Well, I mean, when you're talking about someone like MBS who has more money than God and doesn't know how to spend it, you know, you don't have to you don't have to work that hard to sell him stuff. <laughs> so, so it's interesting. Mohammed bin Salman and his father did not have money. They were not one of the richest princes. Yeah. And in fact, a lot of these corruption, anti-corruption things, a lot of people who are Saudi watchers will tell you that the money is not going, the money that they're extorting from all of the different people that they're rightfully bunging up for corruption. These guys are definitely corrupt. But the fact of the matter is, is that the money that is being extorted from them is not going into the coffers of state. It's probably going to enrich Mohammed bin Salman and his family. So there's, there's, mm -hmm. you know, it's cor corruption is being stopped, but you know, for my enemies, not for my allies. And so that right. kind of thing is also quite in interesting. Saudi Arabia is a, is a very clear example where a lot of energy and attempts to like think through, oh, well, Vision 2030 will allow it to use its oil money to like deploy it for tech or for investments and, and undermining welfare states. And like all of that is would be removed from like a clear cut analysis like we would find in your book of like, OK, you can say that's what they want to do. But like, what are the actual how are the systems working right now at the time? And what are the limitations like they're still going to have to continue 
to operate these like deep water ports to get out the hydrocarbons. They're still integrated inside of an international energy system dominated by, you know, United States sea power. Like, what does that mean for the transition to 2030? Not like, what does McKenzie think that like returns will look like for for other sovereign wealth funds? It's interesting because it's, uh, you're absolutely right. The the materiality and reality of a petroleum-based economy means that um, there's, there are going to be real constraints um, on on uh, the kind of diversification programs that have been touted and talked about since the 1970s. Mm-hmm. frankly so anybody who has like followed the, the the sort of the economic plans of and and the political plans of any of these sort of monarchies and particularly Saudi Arabia is that every time somebody new comes to power Washington Post and New York Times and all of these other sort of major uh, news outlets um, have something about oh the new era of reform it's going to be a new economic blah and new political blah and of course it's exactly with the exception of certain terminology changing the words are exactly the same the meaning is exactly the same and and this the same kind of uh, constraints still apply. And those constraints are primarily and singularly the fact that these are autocratic regimes that are in power. Um, they produce petroleum in, in great quantities and they can dictate, you know, they're, they're quite significant and as sort of pro- uh, producers, as, as sort of furnishers of petrodollars. And so that gives particularly Saudi Arabia a degree of maneuverability, but also Abu Dhabi is interestingly, a degree of maneuverability, not only in the economic arena, but also in the political and military one. They can do whatever they want to precisely for those things. And we saw that with Biden coming to power and after making a few noises about uh, Jamal Khashoggi's killing, essentially saying, "Okay, well, here's the intelligence report, but we're not going to do anything about it. Thinking about the free zones, which you describe as these kind of like hyper securitized islands, right? They're, you know, surrounded by moats of highways and high barbed wire fences. The, The variegated sovereignty has to be preserved and securitized. And then also thinking about something like Vision 2030 and NEOM, right, which brings in all of these wild promises and fantasies of high technology and and, and so on and so forth. You talk in your book in, in, in really interesting detail about the kind of technopolitics of port management, um, which you describe as, you know, you say, quote, the technopolitics of port management occurs at the point of convergence between automation technologies, algorithmic security, supply chain streamlining, and a degree of fantasy. I love that last line. And you go on to talk about these uh, two kind of fantastical elements. Um, And I, I think that we can't uh, overlook that there is a, uh, a heavy dose of fantasy um, in a lot of this, not just neon, <laughs> but but in the ways that, uh, uh, you know, the management of ports, but particularly not just the management of ports, but the management of labor in ports, both land side and ship side are kind of funneled through these visions of uh, technology and automation and so on. I mean, I think that the, that fantasy um, is anybody who has uh, who follows Elon Musk on Twitter <laughs> can tell you that 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 he sells fantasy more than anything else, you know. In yeah. or Richard Branson, in fact, actually, any of these kind of hipster. Um, sort of uber capitalists, um, essentially sell a fantasy. And I think it's really important to recognize that. So I read thousands of pages of trade journals online and on paper when I was preparing for this. And one of the things that was that really, really um, struck me about uh, 
so talking about blockchain, for example, today, which mm-hmm. is like sort of this, this supposed to be the holy grail of maritime uh, transport. It's going to sort of smooth out the process of, you know, the bills of lading and the, the, the processes of tariffs, et cetera, et cetera. And it's really interesting that in these thousands of pages, it's of course, they're coming out in trade journals, but you would think that at least in the trade journals, there would be a degree of skepticism towards this, but there wasn't any, with the exception of one article that I found in the Journal of Commerce online blog, in which somebody said, the promises that are being given about the blockchain reminds us of the massive promises that was given in about ARFID, the radio frequency identifier thing that was supposed to be the next sort of great kind of, you know, the, the holy grail. And that promise failed and blockchain doesn't seem to be able to do what it promises to do either. And so to me, again, this element of fantasy, of course, is, is enormously significant to the, to, to the reproduction of capitalist ideology. It is, you know, it, it, the, the fantasy is necessary for the, for, for the buy-in that capitalism requires. And so I think that that kind of a fantastical element is quite significant in this. What I'm surprised by is that even the trade journals buy into it. It's You can only go to the, maybe an FT and maybe the sort of the news pages of WSJ, Wall Street Journal, in order to actually get a sense of the reality of how this stuff works. But most of the trade journals just buy the same stuff that they're selling. I I, I completely agree on, on both sides because in, in my own work uh, on smart cities, I, I did very much similar to you where I read thousands of pages of uh, corporate gray literature and trade journals and all of that about smart cities and everything that you described, the way in which these technologies are talked about in the 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 trading and shipping um, industry mirrors the exact same way it's talked about in these other places. And I think you're right that fantasy is the thing that they're selling. That is the real um, product that they have on display. And I think you're also right that, uh, you know, if you really want to actually understand what this means and have any kind of critical analysis, you have to go to places like FT, um, which are uh, actually kind of giving a bit of a, a clear, sober-eyed view of, of, all right, what is this actually going to work? What, is this, what does this even mean? Yeah. I don't know who was it was a Chomsky who said, you know, these are, of course, providing the information for the capitalists. And so they need to be actually for for the for the bosses and for the managers. So they need to have accurate information. So and they do. Although FT also has a quite an interesting bent on stuff. So it yes. really is kind of fun to read. So we're, we're big proponents of reading FT on this yep. podcast. Their editor of Alphaville, Isabella. Uh, has a very interesting, like, has been, like, one of the most prescient on the gig economy yeah. uh, beat, but also, like, is really against MMT and sort of, like, debt financing. And it's really fascinating to see, like, a, <laughs> to see the fights that go on between her and others, which I think is also, like, interesting in that, you know, as both of you talk about with these trade journals, you have people internal to them who believe it and then external observers who need to, like, be critical of it because that's, you know, because they need to help direct money and make the system work. You know, do you, like, do you think on the on the public side that either that there's like a there's like built in mechanisms for the public to either like believe the trade journals or believe in like the critical sources? Because I always wonder, like, you know, for smart cities, for example, you know, as in, as in tech stuff that we've talked about, you know, like it is easy for the public to absorb 
propaganda and you know press releases that are and then over time as things turn more critical and there's a backlash become more uh, become more skeptical of that but even then that's on the terms of these companies and what they've negotiated and grounded their victory you are so spot on i think that there is also a problem that we um it, we don't have the necessary literacy as as systems, whether they're financial systems or technological systems, maritime systems, as they become more and more complex, they become incredibly difficult for people to understand them. The longest time that I spent actually trying to understand something for two pages, maybe three pages in the whole of the book, was trying to understand how derivatives worked. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, <laughs> but no, seriously. And I think I kind of do understand understand it but you know there every day there are these inventions and so I spent an enormous amount of time reading academics who've written about it but also journalists because I think um, uh, thank god for financial journalists because obviously they're writing for a larger audience and they're trying to sort of make things understandable so you know uh, I would read Michael Lewis and then I would go and read Donald McKenzie so Michael mm-hmm. Lewis explains how, for example, uh, high frequency trade works. Donald McKenzie tells you about the sociology of it, you know, and so mm-hmm. reading these things, it, it requires time. It requires um, a certain degree of familiarity with the jargon. It requires you at least to be able to sit down and work on this. And we don't have time. They've taken our time away from us. We need to work all the time. We don't have leisure. We can't sit there and understand these things. And so we try to go with the experts that we think we trust. And that's mm-hmm. how what you're talking about, Ed, comes about, which is that a kind of a exuberance around some fantastical new invention, fantastical new technology, fantastical new system happens until there is enough of a critical backlash against it to where the consensus around the fantasy is broken. But I think, the re- you know, I'm, I'm not going to understand all of that if I'm not, don't have the necessary sort of uh, skills to dig into these incredibly complex systems. And so I think, again, this goes back to Chomsky circa 1970s and how he talks about how, you know, people are very intelligent. You can ask them anything about sports statistics and about how sports work, and they'll be able to tell you the most complicated stories about that. They're they're intelligent, but some things are made unavailable to them. And so I think that this also applies to some of the most significant, one of the some of the most important stuff that is happening in our times today, which to me are financial stuff and technological stuff in all domains of life, especially maritime, you know. So yeah, that that is spot on. The the thing things are made unavailable. This is intentional, right? They, these things are made needlessly complex because they are meant to gatekeep, meant to exclude, and meant to obscure what's actually going on. Uh, you know, the postmodernism gets all the heat for obscuritism, but Wall Street and Silicon Valley are the real obscuritist um, of, 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 of our world. Um, and, and I think you're exactly right, is that there's this arms race to make these visions at once more and more fantastical while making the instruments and the operations more and more complex. So you have only one option, right? You just have to buy into the fantasy because I can understand the fantasy. I can't understand um, the complexity of derivatives and SPACs and algorithms and and all of that nonsense. Or how Um, a blockchain works or, you know... 
or how a Bitcoin works or, you know, and then some of it is just so outlandish that, you know, the Hyperloop, for example, which to take it back to one of the fantasies that I also talk about, which is the Hyperloop, which is supposed to be like frictionless movement of some sort of a thing within a tube. Essentially, if a high speed train inside a tube that doesn't have any kind of anything that, uh, that slows it down. And so this is supposed to be this fantastic mode of transport within the port itself. Um, and I'd like usually to tell a story there, Gokcha Gunel, an anthropologist who's written about Mastar City, a sustainability city in Abu Dhabi, talks mm-hmm. about how Mastar City is supposed to be this incredibly um, high tech, completely automated, fully entirely without human. There's like a tram line that runs alongside it. And one of the things that she talks about is that it, this tram line that is supposed to be fully automated, nobody walks, no, you know, it's just auto- operated from way away, um, actually can't function without a very underpaid wage worker coming every morning with a little brush and a pan sweeping all of the dust off the rail and so this you know these and that's that's a regular tram a hyperloop is not going to be this automated fantasy of sort of incredible speed and technology it's also going to have it's going to require those invisible workers that are doing um, often underpaid, often badly waged, often precarious work in order to make it work. And, and so I think that's really, really important not to be um, seduced by the fantasy. What I would like to end our conversation talking about is that aspect of labor and the the way in which technology plays into it. Because you know we we are definitely um, proponents and talk here about the ways in which things like AI, for example, I, re- I can't remember where I heard it, but I heard you know when you hear AI, instead of thinking artificial intelligence, you should think anonymous Indians, right? Um, <laughs> the ways in which uh, and and like I've called in my own work AI, it, Potemkin, it's Potemkin AI, right? It's just this yeah. kind of veneer of AI hiding all of this hidden labor. And it's exactly what you're talking about with the trams. And I think it goes as well to these kinds of um, visions and, and discourses around things like ghost ports, right? Which I think are its own form of Potemkin automation. This mm-hmm. idea that you'll have this fully or mostly automated port with essentially no people uh, and it's relying on I, I think 5G is also like this is a hugely important and also hugely ignored kind of use case for 5G is mm-hmm. like RFID, like blockchain, like all these technologies. You hear so many people in the industry pointing to 5G. This is what will make ghost ports and an, a reality is if we have 5G. But of course, as you point out in your in your work, you say, quote, these technologies ultimately centralize power through making its workings unintelligible, capillary and ever present. And you go on to talk about how, uh, you know, these ports will still require drivers. They'll still require technical operators and cleaners. And the and you say, quote, the tension will be refracted through racialized regimes of labor. So I wonder if you could talk about um, on one hand, these kinds of the kinds of ways in which these capitalist innovations are really meant to try to suppress or control labor, but also this actually quite very long history of 
labor uprisings, radical protest, and radical, aggressive, brutal suppression of labor in these ports, uh, uh, and particularly in the Arabian Peninsula? Um, I think that it's it, one of the things that becomes incredibly clear when you're doing research um, on the Arabian Peninsula, but all, in a lot of the world, is the extent to which the regimes of labor that currently obtain um, are essentially hierarchies that were created in colonial times, where certain particular particular categories of people, usually Europeans, sit at the top of the pyramid, intermediates, um, usually embourgeoisified, westernized, um, technical uh, middle manager sit in the middle, and then a very heavily racialized um, group of workers are placed at the bottom of the pyramid and are exploited um, in in the ex most extraordinary sort of way. And those regimes of labor were extremely successful for the colonial powers because they also allowed, for example, the colonial powers to play um, different kinds of indigenous categories of people against each other or different categories of non-whites against each other. And so those regimes continue to actually operate in a lot of the world and. Um, the Arabian Peninsula gets a lot of attention, um, I think, about this. But Singapore, for example, operates mm -hmm. in exactly the, the Singapore's labor regimes are more or less the same as they are in um, in the Arabian Peninsula. And in fact, certain categories of visas in the U.S. for, for example, seasonal workers, and those that are trying they're trying to implement here for also for seasonal migrant workers are actually very similar to those kinds of Middle Eastern regimes of operation, and they often operate on. On the basis of racialized and sort of geo, geo national um, kind of hierarchy. So where you belong, what passport you carry ends up determining by and large your location within this kind of a pyramidical um, uh, kind of a labor structure, labor regime. Now, one of the things that is really striking for anybody who knows the labor conditions in the Arabian Peninsula today and knows the degree of repression that is experienced, unions are banned in the you know in almost all the countries uh, of the Gulf, um, or they're heavily circumscribed. So, for example, in Kuwait or Bahrain, where unions are allowed, you can only join if you are a, a citizen and if you're working for a state-owned company. So you can't if you're a worker in a private firm or you're a migrant worker, which is a substantial percentage of the population. You're not allowed to unionize. Um, so in, in some ways, these unions are extremely circumscribed. And, and what that it's interesting to see that despite this massive rep repression, when you go and look at it historically, in the 1960s, some of these places were unbelievable sites of ferment, of political mobilization, of using their leverage to stop the flow of oil, for example, or the transport of goods that were required and necessary to actually shut down uh, power. And they, they struggled not only for um, workplace rights, but also for political rights. So you, you had calls, for example, for a republic in Qatar, you know, which we hear now uh, a lot of uh, light is shown on the labor conditions there because of mm. the World Cup that's going to be taking place there. It's fascinating to see that Qatari workers in the ports were shutting down stuff or in the oil um, facilities, they were shutting down stuff. Same is true of Abu Dhabi, which is now one of the most repressive against both workers and and um, and dissidents. The same in Saudi, you know, Saudi Arabia. It, it's There is this long history of labor uh, mobilization 
question. And then there's very explicit plans, often by the British, to engineer a, uh, the workforce in such a way that they could reinforce that hier hierarchical, uh, pyramidical labor regime. So I found documents from the British labor attaché writing to the US labor attaché saying, these um, Arab workers, for example, many of them were from Egypt, but a lot of them were also local. They can speak with each other. They can form solidarity groups with each other. What we need to do is we need to import populations that don't speak the same language. Mm. And so there's there's very explicit planning going on in who gets to come and work in those places. And so I think that history um, is one that is forgotten. Um, and so people, you know, think about the population, the working population in the Gulf as a kind of a docile population that never does anything or has been repressed. But there is this unbelievable history. And even now in the interstices of all this uh, repression, you know, workers organize, workers riot, workers demonstrate, and then they get deported because often they're migrants. And so mm -hmm. this, this really, this story and its history really needs to be excavated a lot more. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think your book does a, a a really beautiful and necessary job of of doing that. And um, well, you know, you've you've mentioned you know at the beginning of uh, near the beginning of the episode that you you took trips on uh, shipping uh, these container ships. You know, you've been in that region, and and you know, one of the things that I I was thinking about, you know, when people are talking about like the size of the Ever Given, right? Um, it, it it is really you really cannot comprehend it until you see it up close. Like, remember when I first moved to Sydney, Australia, and being in Circular Key in the harbor and seeing, um, not shipping containers, but the cruise ships, these like Oasis class, uh, cruise ships. You know, some of the largest in the world, and realizing that these are just horizontal skyscrapers. The, yeah. These are incomprehensibly big. Um, and, and I think bringing that kind of um, uh, first person experience, that on the ground experience really adds a lot of rich detail to, to your book. And, and the things that you're okay. talking about, like uh, a few years ago, I spent a couple weeks in, in Doha and in Qatar. And it wasn't until I'd done that that I really thought, Okay, like seeing that this city is a weird ghost city and seeing the the hyper segregation there and the ways in which it, it, that, that labor regime and power regime works. Um, I, I think these kinds of first person experiences, either having them yourselves or reading them through uh, excellent work like yours is so necessary to then like contextualizing and linking up these much broader abstract kind of global networks of shipping and capitalism. Thank you. Yeah, it was an amazing thing. I, I have to say the most fun part of the research was undoubtedly getting on those container ships. And I'm hoping to write something about oil tankers next, because I also really want to do all of the things that are tied to oil tankers, everything from sort of oil futures. It was actually a really amazing piece in Bloomberg yesterday or today um, about the traders who work for BP and Shell, um, as well as all of the different sort of, you know, tankers were ahead of containers on automation. Um, they were ahead in, in a lot of ways. And so I am hoping, um, fingers crossed, that I can actually go and do some research on tankers because there's really nothing. I highly recommend it. If you guys can find um, somebody to pay for you to go, because it's not it's not cheap, to go as a freight <laughs> uh, traveler on one of these big freighters, it is an amazing experience. 
Yeah, I mean, that would be amazing. Well, I, I know we're all looking forward to that work on oil tankers. I just remember, you know, talk about the complexity of finance and technology there. I remember reading a paper a few years ago about the ridiculously complex futures market on space and oil barrels. <laughs> it's like it is just derivatives on top of derivatives futures on top of futures it, it it's 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 finance all the way down <laughs> but it's also politics all the way down so one of the mm-hmm. most amazing bits about that bloomberg piece about the traders was that the reason bp got into oil trading so you know the futures trading etc was was because of the iranian revolution and they lost their access to iranian oil so they had to start trading on the spot market and so that actually led them to set up a trading arm that is that then went on to do derivatives and everything else so there is a kind of a political history tied on tied into all of this and i'd really love to get at that Thank you again, Lala. This has been fantastic. Everyone, I mean, Lala's book uh, is Sinews of War and Trade, Shipping and Capitalism in the Arabian Peninsula. And if you're listening to this podcast, you need to pick up and read this book because we've we've really only scratched the surface of of what is a a really great book. Um, So pick that up. Follow Lala on Twitter. We'll, we will throw all of this uh, in the episode descriptions, links to all of this. Thank you for, for taking the time. Thank you very much. Lovely to meet all three of you. Well, that was a, a fantastic discussion with Lala. Like I said, everybody pick up her book. Uh, it is well worth your time. And just there's so much to learn from it. Um, and I want to thank everybody for listening. Find us at patreon.com slash thismachinekills, where you can subscribe to get premium episodes every week. Um, and we've got another one coming at you later this week. So until then, we will see y'all later.
It's machine kill.